don't know about you, I don't remember the last time that you read 1 Samuel, but this is, this is an exciting book. This is a great story. Uh, it's, it's one of the greatest stories ever told because we have the great protagonist of all of history, God himself, as the hero of the story. But nevertheless, it is a great and exciting story with, with adventures abounding, but also with much for us to gain, much for God to tell us and for us to listen to. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, know that this is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. Even if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, you can just open up your phone's browser and search 1 Samuel 1. We'll be reading from the ESV version, and you can just follow along in there. For those of you who have the the ESV journals, (coughs) uh, take notes today. We'll have plenty of opportunities to to take notes. Uh, Follow along in in that journal. Let it be a record to you of this whole sermon series. So... With that, Primero Samuel, capítulo 1, versículos 1 a 28. 1 Samuel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Read along with me. There was a certain man of Ramathayim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tofu, Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. <laughs> he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli... Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. 
I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel, grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in, his, in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child, I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we offer our ears and our very selves to you this morning. Lord, would you posture our hearts in service even now, God, that we might not only receive your word as, as consumers for our own benefit, but that we would receive your word in worship, offering our, our lives and our hearts and our ears and our minds and our wills to you, that they might be conformed as your spirit works for your glory, for our good. Amen. 1 Samuel, now that we're actually at the beginning of the book here and jumping off into this book, it, it begins at one of the most pivotal moments in the history of Israel. As we heard last week, the book of Judges recounts the horrific downward spiral of the nation of Israel. This nation who had been called out by God from the nations, who had been given a name at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, after the Lord had, had redeemed them from slavery and brought them out and saved them, the God who had made his covenant with them and said, I will be your God and you will be my people, the God who said, I will be your God to bless you. And if you keep this covenant, you will be blessed. If you break this covenant, there will be curses. But nevertheless, I am establishing myself 
as your covenant king. And as God brings them into the land that he had promised them, to set them apart from the nations, what does Israel do but become like the nations, treasonously rejecting the God who had established himself as king over them. And they begin to just satisfy their own lusts. They, they, they worship whatever God comes around the corner to, to the next nation that they interact with, slowly but surely and definitely rejecting the king who is. And Judges ends with the phrase, there was no king in the land in those days and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Effectively saying everybody was their own king, 10,000 little kingdoms, 10,000 little kings. And what really reigns in that kind of situation is chaos. And that's where Israel was. And that's where 1 Samuel begins. That the year is somewhere around 1050 BC, so just over a thousand years before Christ. So things would continue to get a little worse, and Israel would ebb and flow as they realized they need they need someone, namely God's Messiah. But but God right here is about to usher in a new age through a man named Samuel. A man who functions as the very last of the judges, at the same time functioning as the first of the prophets in the long line of God's prophets. A man who, just like John the Baptist, would prepare God's people for a coming king. A king after God's own heart. And in the Bible, (laughs) one of the ways that you know that someone is going to play a significant role in God's God's plan of redemption is that they get their own birth narrative. <laughs> they, they, get, they get their own story of, of how, how they were born. And, and just like Moses and Samson and John the Baptist and Jesus, all of them were, were born in times of distress to humble and godly parents. And Samuel is just the same. So Samuel enters, the, enters history as the son of Elkanah and Hannah. But Samuel himself doesn't enter the picture until the end of of chapter 1. And until then, Hannah carries this story. This humble woman. And, and, And there's one painfully obvious detail that becomes immediately obvious about Hannah. Right? She can't have kids. She's barren. Verses 5 and 6 say, The Lord had closed her womb. And we'll get to that in a moment, but isn't that interesting? It says the Lord had closed her womb twice in verses 5 and 6. So, so, so Elkanah marries her, get this. And, and Elkanah is, is, is a godly man, but, but also de- depicted, uh, depicting the, the, the fallenness of Israel, what does he do in response to that? He goes and marries another wife so that he can have kids and carry on his line. Polygamy is, is, is present all throughout the, New Test, or out the, throughout the Old Testament, not because it's condoned by God. God had said in Genesis that marriage is between one man and one woman, but Israel had fallen so far away from the ideal that even those who were considered godly, even the man after God's own heart, engaged in 
polygamy. So Elkanah takes another wife to continue his bloodline because Hannah can't have kids. Her name is Peninnah, and Peninnah has all kinds of kids, sons and daughters, and she derides Hannah. She tells her kids, hey kids, look at Miss Hannah. You know why she's so sad? She can't have kids. And she holds it over Hannah. Because she knows that Elkanah has a special place in his heart for, for Hannah. Verse, verse 6 says he loves her. And, and even, even hurts Elkanah because he says, Hannah, wh- why are you so sad? Am I not to you more than ten sons? Which itself, that, that's a picture of Israel, isn't it? That's, that's God looking at his people and going, am, am, am I not to you more than a thousand of these idols that you're going after? Which speaks to the very purpose of why this begins with a barren woman. It's because Hannah's barrenness corresponds to Israel's spiritual state. That's why 1 Samuel opens this way. Israel was morally and spiritually empty. They had kicked the king who made them, the the king who is off of his throne. Their hearts were turning to stone and their lives were producing thorns instead of fruit. Their hearts were barren and dry. And in similar fashion, Hannah's barrenness corresponds to, to our barrenness, to you and me. Primarily, like Israel, in our barrenness of soul, when, when you've drifted from God, and you know what this is like, when you've drifted, drifted from God, when, when your life isn't bearing the fruit that God intended it to bear, you, you might call this barrenness of soul. But, but, but listen, maybe it's because of that secret sin that you're indulging. That thing that nobody knows about and that you foster and sort of coddle in your heart, thinking that you can, you can get away with serving the Lord and, and, and at the same time fostering this, this sinful habit or practice or thought pattern in the quietness and secret of your own heart, thinking that you can still maintain some sort of a spiritual vitality while doing so, while all the while it's growing and taking root and consuming you from the inside out. Maybe maybe you just find yourself less interested in God and more interested in the world, more interested in the distractions all around you, and you you just find less appeal in, in God himself. Have you ever had spiritually dry seasons like that? I certainly have. In those seasons when I find reasons not to pray with my family. In those seasons when I choose to, to read sports news in the morning instead of opening up God's word and meeting with him. In, in, in those seasons when, when gathering with God's people on Sunday or for small group starts to just lose its appeal and I would rather just go and do something that, that, that diverts my attention and distracts me and, and, and allows me to sort of escape from the, the busyness and the cares of life. When, when being self-disciplined and pursuing holiness just doesn't seem worth it 
or enjoyable and God loses his luster and you experience barrenness of soul. But, but also like Hannah, literally, you can experience the barrenness of trials and afflictions or, or very painfully the barrenness of being devoid of something that you desperately want. And I think you know that barrenness too. When you, when you really, really want something and you feel like if I don't get it, there's going to be something major missing in my life. And God, I'm not sure how you could care for me if I don't get this thing. Whatever it is, the question that's posed to us today is, how should we deal with barrenness? When we're empty, when we're dry, whether it's barrenness of soul or or barrenness of unfulfilled desires, how should we deal with that? What's the right way to deal with that? What's the God-glorifying way to deal with that? Well, Through Hannah, God gives us a sound example. He gives us wise instruction from the life of this godly woman. Wise instruction from a wise king to speak to us in our barrenness. And two two answers arise for this question. Two answers that God graciously gives us. And thus, two, two points to guide the rest of our time. So if you are taking notes, write these two points down. The first is turn to the king when your soul is barren. Step number one, turn to the king when your soul is barren. Number two, offer your life in service to the king. How do you deal with barrenness of the soul when you're in a season like Israel was, wandering far from God, more entranced by the distractions that would pull your mind away than the God who created you, turn to the king when your soul is barren and offer your life in service to the king. So the first point, turn to the king when your soul is barren. The shame of of her closed womb and the scorn that was heaped on her by Peninnah drove Hannah to a, a despair that was so deep she lost her appetite for food. Verse 9, when the family had traveled from Ramah to Shiloh, she took the opportunity to go to the tabernacle and to pray. And pray she did. But as she prayed, somebody named Eli saw her. Okay, I want to introduce Eli here. He's first introduced in verse 3, along with his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And (laughs) these were some grade A incompetent and bad dudes. I mean, Eli... Listen, he's the priest at Shiloh, and his sons are also priests. But Eli is the high priest at Shiloh. And Shiloh, until, until the temple is established at Jerusalem, the tabernacle was erected at Shiloh. And so Shiloh was the, the spiritual center of Israel, where, where, where God's presence dwelt. And, and Eli is the high priest... <laughs> Of Shiloh. So, in the absence of a king and in the absence of a judge, Eli is the most spiritually influential and the most powerful man in all of Israel. Okay? But as one commentator says, the spiritual powerhouse in this narrative 
was a socially impotent woman who alone understood the true power of undivided faith in the Lord. (laughs) Here's the ironic role reversal so common in Scripture. You see it all the time. We would expect Eli, the man in the highest position of God's holy nation, to be the upholder of true spirituality and the one who would break through to God's grace for God's people. But no. In fact, look at verses 12 through 13. As Hannah poured her heart out before the Lord in prayer, he thought she was a mumbling drunk. And that might look like an inane couple of verses. What what significance does that have in it? I'll tell you the, the significance. If Israel had a spiritual leader who couldn't discern the difference between a godly woman's heartfelt prayer and, and the ramblings of a drunkard, then no wonder Israel was in a leadership crisis. Never mind the fact that he would expect uh, drunkards to be hanging around the tabernacle. That, that's just where Israel was at that point in time. Eli was an impotent leader, and his sons were downright wicked. And if you think I'm being harsh on them, just wait until next week. That'll be be, uh, very clearly proven. They're examples of how far Israel has fallen. But Hannah, this social pariah, she sets the example for godliness for us. Because of her simple act of going to the Lord in prayer. Her prayer in verse 11, really, it's really the hinge of this whole chapter, and, and the Lord instructs us through her prayer. So there are several things that are worth noting in, in her prayer, and the first of these is, is simply this, and it's so, gosh, it's so simple, but it's a fundamental first step. She turned to the, to the king in her need. She turned to the king in her need. Most significantly, Her prayer represents that Hannah actually turned. We we, we can wallow in the midst of our afflictions. We can can just sit in denial in in the midst of of our wanderings and wondering, how did I get in this place? How are things happening like this when we're failing to actually turn to the Lord? in our spiritually dry seasons, or, or when we're acting like little kings over our own kingdoms, or when we're harboring secret sin, you will not escape your barrenness apart from turning to the king. If you get one thing this morning, let, let it be that. If you are experiencing barrenness, do not fail to turn to the king. You will not es- escape your barrenness apart from that. Secondly, Having turned to the king, Hannah prayed knowing who God is. She prayed knowing who the king is. Look look at the title that she uses for God. She says, O Lord of hosts. This is actually the very first time that this title is used of God in the Old Testament, in the Bible. And imagine that. It's the beginning of of this narrative regarding the establishment of a king in Israel. And this this title, Lord of Hosts, means that the the, the God of heavenly hosts, the God of all the hosts of all creation, in other words, the king. 
Hannah is praying to the Lord, acknowledging what Israel had failed to do for generations, namely that he is king. She gets it. Hannah's honoring God as king. In a time when there was no king in the land, Hannah knew that the true king had always been there. The same king that had faithfully delivered Israel from the Egyptians, from the hand of Pharaoh. And in fact, look at the words of her prayer. Look, look at the words of her prayer. She says, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. These are words almost straight from Exodus 3, 7, when God said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people and heard their cry because of their taskmasters. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Hannah was asking God to be the same God as he was to his people when they were in slavery in Egypt. Hannah was asking the covenant king to be her covenant king. She acknowledged the king who he is and asked asked him to be the king over her life, to deliver her just as he had delivered his people time and again. The next thing to acknowledge here in her prayer is that she prayed knowing who she was. She turned to the Lord. She acknowledged God as king, but she also acknowledged who she was. Hannah refers to herself, she refers to herself as God's servant. It's God's humble servant. She knew who she was. She knew she was no queen. She was a servant of the one true king. She knew that he had control and she existed for his purposes. This is what makes sense of verses 5 and 6 when it says that the Lord had closed her womb. Actually, that, that, is, that is a signal of hope for Hannah because what, what, what might appear as a difficult truth to accept upon first reading is actually a sign of hope for a humble servant like Hannah because it's evident that God was not absent in her trial but was actually king over her trial. Her trial was being orchestrated by a faithful God that had delivered his people over and over and over again, and she knew that. A God who doesn't seek to destroy us through afflictions, but rather, time and again, a a God who who saves us through our afflictions. And, And in Hannah's case, if you're doubting that, God was using her plight to orchestrate Israel's deliverance from the dark era of the judges. She didn't know that exactly. She didn't know what role Samuel would end up playing in redemptive history, even though it was a huge one, but she trusted that God was doing something. And friends, we have even greater assurance than Hannah because we know Jesus Hannah prayed her prayer 1,050 years before Jesus came on the scene. We know Jesus. And that gives us hope because in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed in Mark 14, 36, Father, let this cup pass. In other words, Father, look 
on the affliction of your servants. Jesus, experiencing the agony of knowing what was to come in his crucifixion, cries out to God and says, would you look on the affliction of your son? And as Hannah prayed that same prayer, saying, would you look on the affliction of your servant? God looked a thousand years into the future, knowing that he would pour the wrath that Hannah had deserved for her sin upon his son. Knowing that that the son of the king's sacrifice would make the way for mercy to be given to Hannah. Hannah could have confidence through the promised Messiah that was yet to come for her, but who has come for us, through that promised Messiah, mercy was possible. She could have confidence in her prayer. And for us who know Jesus, we have supreme confidence that when we say, look upon the barrenness of my soul, God, that he will respond mercifully because of Christ. Friend, if you are in a state of spiritual dryness, if you're stuck in sin, if you're wandering from God, turn to the king. What this means is pray. Actually go to him in prayer and acknowledge him as king. Acknowledge yourself as his servant and ask for mercy. Simple application here, but one that I know I far too infrequently (laughs) apply. One final observation about Hannah's prayer is that she knew what she wanted, and she wasn't afraid to ask. She knew what she wanted, and she wasn't afraid to ask. And that brings us to the second answer of what should we do in our barrenness. The second point of today's message, which is offer your life in service to the king. Offer your life in service to the king. So so first, turn to the king in your barrenness, but go a step further. Offer your life in his service. Let me just say, in, in in response to, to Hannah's prayer, I mean, she's praying for something she desperately wants, right? I mean, talk about a strong desire. It just took her appetite away. It is not wrong to desire. It's not wrong to ask for what we want. The Christian life shouldn't be a self-flagellatory, whip myself over the back, never experience any sort of desire or, or good thing or enjoyment in life. No, that, that's... That's a misreading of the Bible. It's good to ask God for what we want. And sure, our, yes, our prayers should be filled with, with uh, adoration of God, to give him thanks for his blessings, to confess to him uh, our sins, seek cleansing, but we should also realize that God invites us to make requests of him. And then it honors the Lord when we do so. J- James James states a rule in James chapter 4 that sadly explains a whole lot of our spiritual poverty. He says in James 4 (laughs) 2, you do not have because you do not ask. 
oftentimes in our lives we do not have because we haven't turned to the Lord and asked. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. So the issue with, with asking isn't whether we should ask or not ask. But the issue with asking is why you're asking. Or in other words, who are your desires serving? Who, who does what you're asking for serve? Why are you asking for it? There's a, there's a distinct feeling that I, that I get when I want something really badly. And, and I feel like it's, it's unique to me because it's, it's so intense. But I know, I know it's not unique to me. But, but here, here's, a, here's an example. A few years ago, when we were living in an apartment in downtown Santa Ana, we, we'd spent over two years searching for a, a, a house to rent near downtown, and nothing ever came up. We'd look on, we'd look on Zillow and other, other real estate sites looking to see if something had come up. Nothing ever came up. But then one day, there's this little blue house that came up to rent. It was like 300 yards from this building here, right in French Park. And, and we looked at it and came up for rent. Kelsey came to me. She was like, there, there's this house. We should, we should go check it out. So we did. We went and toured it, and we, we walked through it, and we loved it. And for the first time in over two years, we looked, it looked like there was a possibility that we might actually be able to find a house to rent near downtown Santa Ana. And we were so excited, so we put our application in. And that's when the feeling hit for me. I don't know if you, if you can relate to this, but from that moment on, I could not shake it. It was all I could think about. An anxiety that was so intense that my memory of it actually evokes a, like a burning sensation right here in the middle of my chest. And, and I would think, gosh, I don't, I don't want to be obsessing over this, but I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And then we got noticed that we didn't get the house. And it was, I'm not proud of it, I rarely am, but it was like my world had just crashed around me. I, I, I didn't get the desire of my soul. And I think however intense my desire was, Hannah's was exponentially more. And you've probably had desires like that too. That, that the desires that, that you think to yourself, if I don't have this, what will life be without it? How can I continue to move forward with, without this in my life? Or, or even just, I want this really, really badly. Maybe it's Maybe it is the literal desire for a child or, or a spouse, a human whom you're sure will fill something in you that's currently empty, or, 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 or something else, a, a thing or an experience or a standard of living, well, whatever it is. Too often, though, like me with the little blue house, I'm asking for me. It's about me and what I want to fulfill my needs and to make me happy and to build my little kingdom. It's fascinating. In James 4.3, right after, right after James says, you have because you do not ask, James 4.3 says, when you do ask and don't receive, 
it's often because you spend it on your own passions. <laughs> He's saying, you, when you actually do come around to asking God for things, you're just asking them as though he is a genie who's, who's there to fulfill your desires. It's about you and God helping you to build your kingdom. And James is essentially saying, you wonder why you ask and don't receive. Because you're continuing to act as though you are still king over your kingdom. But Hannah... Hannah submitted her desire in service to the king. She offered whatever child God gave her to his service for life. She offered what, what's called a Nazarite vow. It's, it's, it's described in Numbers chapter 6, and it's a, usually a temporary vow wherein the, the person making the vow uh, abstains from alcohol, abstains from touching dead things, abstains from cutting their hair, and gives themselves to the formal service of the Lord in his presence. But like Samson, Hannah was offering the son that would be conceived if God granted it to his service for a lifetime. And when the Lord mercifully does grant her prayer in verse 20, she follows through, verse 22. And she weaned him for a year to make sure that, that he, was, he was old enough to, to be able to be separated from his mom. And when, when he was, she brought, her, she brought him to the temple and brought a sacrifice with him and committed him to the service of the Lord. Brought him straight to Eli and said, he is, he's under your care for a life devoted to the Lord. So let me ask this. Was Hannah making a bargain with God here? Is, is, is that what we're talking about? Are, are, are we saying that if you want something, ask God for it, but strike a deal with him so you've got some skin in the game? You know, maybe give something to God so that, so that it's not all about you, but God's getting something in this deal and there's like, sort of like an exchange of goods? No. Commentator Richard Phillips helpfully says, we should consider the sacrifice involved in Hannah's vow. She was offering to forego the joys of parenting the child she longed to bear. She was also forfeiting the status that a child would bring to her in society. So she was forfeiting being able to be identified as a mother with children. She would still go around with no children, uh, hugging at her, her legs, so her prayer was not a bargain in which she offered something to God to get what she wanted. Rather, what she wanted was a child to offer to the Lord. That's key. She wanted to play her role in God's plan of salvation. And she was zealous to play a most meaningful role to bear a lifelong Nazarite who would wholeheartedly serve the Lord. Another author summarizes, the whole climate of this prayer is one of holy motives, hallowed desires, and humble submission. Hannah's chief desire was God's glory. And when your chief desire is God's glory, all other desires are subsumed 
by that greatest desire. All other desires align themselves toward God and away from me. When our chief desire is God's glory, it's then that we can know that all of our lesser desires are directed in the appropriate fashion. What do you desire? What do you desire? What do you want? What what burns in your heart that you can't think of not having it until you actually have it? What's your little blue house? Do you want that thing so that, so that it can be spent on your passions to build your kingdom or so that it can be used for God's glory? Take, take money, for example. Talk about something that is a common desire of, of men and women, not just in Santa Ana or California, but around the world. If, if you want a, a, a higher income, say, do you want it so that you can live more comfortably, comfortably yourself or so that you can use it to advance God's kingdom, to, to invest in, in the mission of the local church, to be able to extend mercy to your needy neighbor, to be able to, uh, to build a household where God is glorified. Is that, are you thinking, I would like a greater standard of living, standard of living so that I might be able to glorify God in ways that I'm not able to right now? Or is it just because I don't want to be in the red every month in my bills and I'm tired of living like that? Which isn't a bad desire. But when your chief desire is God's glory, all other desires are aligned in the right direction. Now, <laughs> importantly, this text isn't a, a, a formula for infertile couples to have a kid. Okay. This isn't just, just pray and offer your kid up as a Nazarite for life, and nine months later, wouldn't you know, you have a kid. But it's also not merely about subjecting your desires to the king. It's about the goodness of offering our entire lives to our good and faithful king. You see, when Hannah finally brings the little one-year-old Samuel to the tabernacle, she comes before Eli in verse 26. Look at verse 26 with me. And she says, Oh, my Lord, speaking, speaking to the high priest, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. Remember a year ago or two years ago? That was me. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. One other commentator named Bill Arnold says, having come to God with nothing, Hannah returns to give back that which means everything. You see, friends, you have to realize, Samuel wasn't just a thing to Hannah. Samuel was everything. She she was, he was her consummate desire. There was nothing in life outside of God's glory that she wanted more, and she joyfully gave him to the Lord's service. 
Hannah could give her greatest desire to the Lord because she had already offered her own life to the Lord. Everything she had was from him. And so she gladly offered him everything. And this, friends, is the crux of a life of sacrifice. You and I come to God with nothing. We come before God bringing him nothing but our sin and brokenness and grief and sorrow and need. That's what we bring to God. And he gives us everything. In Christ, he has given us everything. Mercy when no mercy was deserved. Grace when no grace could be expected. And he gave it without limit. Paul speaks this way in Romans 11. Fast forward a thousand years. A little more than a thousand years. Romans 11, 30 and 31. Speaking to Christians about Israel themselves. He says, For just as you Christians were at one time disobedient to God but have now received mercy, so they too, Israel, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they may also receive mercy. In other words, God shows mercy to some that others might see his mercy and turn and receive mercy themselves. That was the first point in the sermon, wasn't it? Hannah turned toward God for mercy in her barrenness as an example for Israel to turn to God in their spiritual barrenness and receive mercy. So as as those who have received mercy, as those who have received everything from God beyond what we could have expected, what is then Paul's conclusion in Romans 12.1? We read it as a call to worship this morning. In case you forgot, the conclusion of the appropriate response for those who have received such abundant mercy, who have received everything when we brought nothing, is Romans 12.1. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. See, this whole picture of Hannah offering Samuel is a picture of what Israel as a nation should be doing in reverence toward their king. It's what we should do in the midst of our barrenness, not to simply turn to him in prayer, to then turn right back to our wandering away from him, but to turn to him in prayer and to offer him our very lives having received mercy from him in our petition to offer him our very lives. It is good to live in service to this king. So friend, are you barren this morning? Are you wandering from God? Are you more entranced by the world and what's on your cell phone than by the creator of this universe? Are you harboring secret sin? Are you desperately desiring something? Turn to him in prayer. Don't keep running away. Turn to the king. 
receive mercy in Christ and on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, receive that mercy. But don't simply turn in prayer. Turn your life. Offer your life in service to the king. Would you pray with me? God, you are a good king. You are a faithful king. You are a God who doesn't seek to destroy us through trials and afflictions, but instead seeks to save us through them. You are a God who gives mercy when mercy is asked for. You are a God who delights to give what your children need. You're a God who deserves not just the things of our lives, not just the things we want to give and easily give, but our very lives. Would you help us, Lord, to turn and to offer ourselves in service to you, our great King. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.